Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Enter the spectacle and drama of a megafire alongside a firefighting team struggling to save anything they can while protecting each other. Fireline takes audiences into the firescape to feel for the first time what those fighting these blazes face, especially as climate change makes these megafires larger and more frequent. It's an intimate portrait of a system stretched to its breaking point, revealing the friendship, heartbreak, and exhilaration of those who go to war against this elemental force. The documentary film again is called Fireline, and we're joined today by the director, Tyler Norwood. Tyler, welcome to Film School Radio. Uh, so happy to be here. Thank you. First, congratulations on a film that is well-rounded in terms of bringing a perspective of what it takes to fight a fire, a mega fire in this case, and getting to know the people who are out there on the front lines and getting to know how they work together and what it takes to really be successful and safe in, in an enterprise like this. What inspired you to pursue this as a uh, film project? My producing partner, Ben, and I, we just made this film about Robin Williams that was a big hit. It's uh, called Robin's Wish. We were sort of sitting around in his little condo in Culver City, like just hanging out, thinking about like what would be what would be the next big challenge. I heard this recent quote from Martin Scorsese where he said that um, he really loved like uh, the the studio system where you'd kind of do all sorts of different genre films and you could sort of like jump from one to the other. And it was really about your skill as a director to be able to like just be a conduit for the story. I love that idea. And so basically the first films we did were kind of social justice films where we like went to Detroit embedded with these communities of people trying to like get their city back. Then we did kind of this big profile piece on Robin Williams. And I was like, you know, I want to make like a war film, something like Apocalypse Now. I love like Heart of Darkness, like the the book that that's based off of, of, of like kind of going up river and things just become stranger and stranger as you get farther and farther out of your comfort zone. And I thought, the more we kind of learned about how the fire system works early on, and we had a ton to learn when we thought we knew something, we had miles to go. But I was like, you know, I think it, I think there is going to be a lot of that same military thing that's in Apocalypse Now, where you're at kind of like a base, and it feels familiar, but you're definitely not in a safe place. You're in some sort of quasi-foreign area. And then I was like, I'll bet you, as you go farther and farther out towards whatever this fire is, there's going to be less and less support. There's going to be more and more individual kind of like Lord of the Flies, like making it work, like kind of the way humans just sort of figure out balance. And so I was like, well, that would be really cool. And there's a David Ayer film um, called Fury about these three guys in a tank and Brad Pitt's in it and they and they go out with Shia LaBeouf and and they and I was like that would be amazing if we could do something like that like if it was that movie and apocalypse now like mixed together and these guys are going up a river and so that was what we started with and we pitched it to the firefighters union early on cuz one of the things I learned from Robin's Wish is it's really cool to get a camera somewhere that you haven't seen a camera before and the way you do that is these really kind of not necessarily boring but like wide scope uh, approaches to like high up organizations. And so we we started saying, okay, if we can get the firefighters union involved, then maybe we can get the state involved. And if we get the state involved, then maybe we can like find another organization. And if we get three of those, then we probably can put a camera wherever we want. 
So we did all this boots on the ground work of phone calls and chasing down like production stuff. But eventually we got it all. At that point, there was total alignment across from the governor's office to the firefighters union. So we had no impediment. It was kind of like wherever we wanted to put a camera in the state of California in a, in a disaster area, we could. And so we did a lot of fishing. And essentially, after like the 10th time we went out with the crew, we got this amazing evening where these guys essentially did a 36-hour shift. They were starting a 24-hour shift, which is standard. They do 24 on and then like six off to get some sleep and then another 24. And they just stay out in the woods for up to 60 days, some of these guys. So it's this real like, in that way, Heart of Darkness becomes like more of a cerebral process. It's not necessarily like, are you ready to fight? It's actually like, how do you stay engaged with your surroundings as they become more and more foreign? And that really felt like the journey of these firefighters is like on day 20, on day 30 of being away from your family, of being on little sleep. A lot of these guys sometimes will have to sleep in the dirt. Like the guys in our film, they were on this like assignment where like if they could get an hour of sleep when they finally calm things down, like they had to sleep in the dirt, like in the back backyard of someone's house. And it just is like this really foreign testing thing that I felt like would be a really powerful journey for an audience to go on of like, you know, you, it immediately calls to mind, like, what would you do? How would you react? Could you, could I, you know, which I, I love. I think that's the amazing thing about war films is like, it's really uh, saying, if you were called, would you be able to answer? And uh, I think that these guys are called on a regular basis and they answer. And it was a really powerful experience of getting to see them in a light uh, that I hadn't before, to your point. Like a lot of the times they're kind of ghosts. They're moving They're moving in the backgrounds of these kinds of films because like you can't get this access. And so you see them. And then when they are speaking directly to you, it's, um, it's with the veneer of like a, a service person who's kind of like, Fire's moving this way. It's about 20 knots, probably going to be over here in like an hour. You should do X, right? But the, but this one, you're in the fire engine. You're the fourth member of a three-man team for the entire length of the film. And that part felt really valuable and interesting and like um, cinematic in a way that I was like, that's a good synergy of like my talents and 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 where I'm excited to sort of explore. That That's how we ended up doing what we did. Tyler, I want to focus on something that you said at the beginning of your answer, and that was that you worked to get to a point where you had access because you had created a level of trust with the people who were supervising the crew that you find yourself with. And I know from personal experience as someone who worked in government, who worked at a very large public works agency, how adverse those people are generally to anyone who's an outsider, especially when you're in a situation where, as you were, in the command center of a major fire and there is a lot of things being discussed and people who are making some very difficult decisions. So in order for you to be in the room when that happened is quite an accomplishment in and of itself. So for anyone who's a filmmaker who is listening to our conversation, this is something that I think there are so many subjects that are worth exploring, but it comes along with the ability to build trust within the people who can make this happen for you. And I thought how you went about it and what you just described is incredibly important. Just as a, an additional piece to that, that I actually, it was a little bit of a thing where you kind of, once you learn this thing, you never go back from a filmmaking standpoint, which is that it's a lot easier to get a yes. If you can get a hold of somebody at the top, it's so much easier to get a yes from them and then a cascading set of yeses that follow than to work your way up from the bottom, 
right? Like we were just doing something for the San Francisco Chronicle yesterday. And it's like, there was some uh, beat cops around and it's like, man, if you tried to film a beat cop and he's like, well, I got to ask my manager and then he's got to check with the district guy. And then it's like, if you try and go that way, (laughs) it's so much easier if you have an idea of what you want to do to get in charge with the person at the state level. And most of the time they're kind of bureaucratic. Like they're not on, they're not boots on the ground. They're sort of like, they have a little bit more free time. They have a little bit more ability to imagine what you're saying. Right. And they might have some um, familiarity with storytelling in, in some ways, especially at like, you know, the person who's the head of the OES, they have a whole media department. Right. So he was like, oh, I hear what you're saying. So you're looking to do X, Y, right. Whereas if you start from the bottom and try and go up, they don't really know what you're trying to do. And so the only thing they think about is the negative Im- implications, um, which are safety concerns. Right. Like to your point, like, being with these guys as the fourth person in the engine, they had to take on the responsibility of like making sure I didn't die, which means that they all have to like, let's say their safety quotients at a hundred when they go in with just the three of them. If I'm there, it goes down to like 85, which is like, that's sizable and something they really had to think about and weren't excited about in the, in the first two hours. But luckily uh, I turned on as, as much charm as I could muster. And they were like, Oh, this guy's all right. Let's talk about the office, the California Office of Emergency Services. Tell us a little bit about them and what they're about. California Office of Emergency Services, and it's an extension of the governor's office. It's a super interesting phenomenon in the state of California, but mostly because of the scale of California. So essentially, there's this guy, Mark Ghiarducci, who's been the head of this organization for like 20 years. And in in between that, he took like a five-year break to work in private. And when he was doing that, he was in charge of like the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Like he was the first person to like kind of take over when um, the Oklahoma City bombings happened. He was there on 9-11. And it's like, uh, I always think about it in the context of Pulp Fiction. And they have Harvey Keitel's character, The Wolf, who just like, when you make a big mistake, when something's really wrong, you call this dude, he's jets in in a three piece suit. You just listen and he starts telling you what to do and, and he fixes it. And like, that's really California has that guy. And he he takes it. He, he assumes all the powers of the governor. He's been entrusted at that level to like if, if there's a fire, if there's you know, when COVID broke out, he wrote a check that he signed for like a billion dollars to like buy because he negotiated this whole thing with like getting our own personal protective equipment for nurses and doctors, like with China. So this dude that like no one's ever heard of is not an elected official is like this incredible, like sort of fixer. And, uh, and he, for the first time actually made himself available in this film. It's really amazing is this person at the very top. He has no idea who these guys in the engine are, but basically these guys are sent to where they're sent to because of the guy at the top and they have to do it. And they have to trust that whatever the system is, is right and good and has thought of putting their lives at risk only with the best possible outcome in mind um, that they that they that these guys have done their work in order that these guys do their work and then this person has to trust that if he pushes these people into a bad situation they're going to be well trained and they're going to be competent and they're going to get the job done and but neither of them knows who the other one is like the guys in the van in the truck they didn't even know what OES really was they they you know like and then the guy up here was like. He'd heard of the Lassen Modoc unit, but there's no way he knows any of the individuals who serve in that. Th- so it's like it was a really interesting thing where you really have Mark Ghiarducci and his second in command looking over a map and saying, we have to send people here. We have to send people here. And then you go into the truck with these guys and they're the ones going there. They're the chess piece. And it's a really interesting look at a system in that way. I tried to keep it really light, but I wanted people to have that sense of like duty and the way that it's it crosses many boundaries but it it, like it's felt in different ways like there's a really cool part of the film where they kind of go through trauma 
And it's the only time in the film where you see them all talking in the same voice, which is that like Mark Ghiriducci has his own trauma because he has to send these guys in there and, and he carries that weight every day. And then these guys carry the weight of seeing the stuff they've seen from being sent in there. I want to remind our audience that we're speaking with Tyler Norwood. He's the director of the documentary film Fireline. And I want to touch on something, expand upon something that you said about the kind of the dynamic of the leadership and the rank and file people who carry out the orders and such. And having worked, as I described earlier, having worked in a large public agency, I can tell you that there is something about the culture, the mentality of the people who are these so-called middle managers. And it's easy to poke fun or uh, malign government and government workers and such. But I can tell you from my own experience that these are people who are really truly dedicated and they have gotten to know their fellow workers. They know each other. They're in unions. They hang out together and they have a very tried and true time-tested way of going about their business, which may seem a tad bureaucratic, but at the same time, it's effective and it is something that they're very comfortable with. And I have nothing but respect for these people because they are not screwing around. They mean it when they do something, when they tell their crew they need to do something. It is gospel. And um, so I respect and I feel like you conveyed that very effectively in the film. And it sounds like it very much lines up with what you were talking about in terms of the people that you got to know in the making of Fireline. Does that sound about right? It sounds like you lived it. It sounds exactly like even more authentic than what we experienced, right? Like, because again, I'm I'm still a, a voyeur in the whole thing. I'm I'm picking up what I can. I'm trying to take pieces that seem like they add to another piece. But you're right. It, it's 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 really um, you want to say like fraternity, but it includes men and women. But there's there's this real sense of like you have to have so much trust, right? If you build it on the military model, which I think I don't think there was any other way to do it, because when you're telling someone to risk their life. That's the only model we have to like, how do you make make a system where somebody can do that reliably and not feel like it's just your your idea and they're going to risk their life based on your, but it, it's in order and it comes from the top and it's been, they did their research, your job is to execute. And that's all very like clear, yeah. but that's, I mean, the amount of trust that they have to have in that system, the amount of um, yeah. personal dedication that goes into making sure that each person down that line is the absolute best they can be. I think that commitment to excellence uh, as it relates to life and death situations was really palpable. Like Mark takes it deadly seriously that he's the best at what he does. And he makes sure the people around him are well-trained and the best at what they do. And then the guys on the ground, they're training. Like the amount of physical fitness that firefighters have is unreal. It's literally like, you don't need all this physical fitness. But like the first thing they did when we got there Again, they're trying to fill me out, like, why are we stuck with a film crew? Like, what did we do wrong that they picked us? And uh, so they were like, there's literally a, a hill that's like, like, just the craziest grade, like mountain goat straight to the bottom. And they're like, hey, we're going to go down there and check it out. They use some sort of like military-esque language that made it sound really official. Like, we're going to go like uh, inspect for whatever. And I'm like, okay, we, we just got here. We got to go with them. And like you literally go over a cliff and like you're just like scrambling down to the bottom. And even that was like physically taxing. We did it for about 30 minutes, maybe like three quarters of a mile straight down. And then these guys get to the bottom. They look around and they go, yeah, it looks pretty good. All right, let's go back up. And I was like, no, 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 no. 
no, no, no. What do you mean back up? I just got what, and they're like, yeah, yeah, no, we're, it all looks good. We validated it. And that's what they said. We're going to go validate that down there. And I'm like, well, yeah, Hey, if they're validating, I got to go. And then they, and they start just crawling back up this thing. Basically. I literally, by the end, one of the guys had to carry my camera. I was on all fours. I drank and I've drank all my water, including what was emergency water. And like, I'm just like, just barely making it back up to the top. And then they were like, this guy's cool. And then after that, they were very like chill, but like they did it effortlessly. And it was like the amount of just daily obsessive sharpening of the blade of who they are so that they can be the most effective at what they do. That part was really interesting because it's the only defense they have in these situations, right? Is like the preparation they do ahead of time. Cause they want, once they're actually in it, there's very little they can control. It's, it's all about adapting to like a changing landscape that literally can change like on a dime. The wind changes and the fire is coming at you instead of moving away from you, right? And it can move at you. To your point, being in Southern California, the fires there can move at like 70 miles an hour. Like a roaring blaze can be moving at 70 miles an hour. And the thing about the timber fires up in the north, let's say it's moving at 15 or 20 miles an hour, but it's burning like a hundred times as hot. Cause it's like, you know, the, the, the fuel that it's burning is. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. cause you get those brush fires kind of like Manzanita, whatever that is in, in South Southern California. And like the wind, the Santa Ana winds will just tear through at 70 miles an hour. And those embers are moving at 70 miles an hour. The fire is moving at 70 miles an hour. So it's like, it's impossible to even imagine how you stop something like that. And then in the North, they have the big timber fire. So it's, it's not moving quite as fast, but it's like, how do you put, they, they were basically saying like they, they, these fire engines, right? They're filled with like, let's say like a thousand gallons of water. A thousand gallons of water does very little out here, right? Like, and like just to really get a sense that like, there's no kind of like giant blaze and they just spray on it and it goes out. If it's 10 trees that are all raging, like all they can do is stop it from like coming at them, but they're not going to be able to put that tree out. Like that tree has to burn. If the wind picks up, it starts blowing chunks of that stuff all over the place. Like so everything is out of control. That that was the part that I think it was actually only after I got back into the edit room that I really had time to like process like just how much of the life of someone in these situations, whether it be the military or fire service, when you commit yourself to a life of sort of putting your yourself in between danger and a, and a population, those orders that you have to follow, you don't have any control over whether they get done or not. The only thing you can do is prepare yourself so that when things go wrong as they will, that you're as ready as you could be for that. And that part for me is like, that's where you get really into that idea of like, I'm just a filmmaker. I am, you know, my manliness quotient is pretty far down, but the respect for these guys was, uh, was really palpable. Like I really, it changed the way I thought about it. And it gave me a real sense of, of what it's like to commit yourself to something. I just want to piggyback on some of the things you were just bringing up. And that is when these guys are out there, they have their fire hose, their water supply, their protective gear, and a shovel. That's it. That was That is what protects them from some very, very serious situations. And also, you're mentioning these fires and this sort of new breed of fire that we're dealing with now, the intensity of it. These things are creating their own weather systems, which gives you some idea of what these men and women are dealing with when they're on the front line of some of these fires. I'd like to switch gears here and talk about the filmmaking part of Fireline and what you experienced. You're standing there with your camera, with this crew, and you can hear these fires coming at you as well as see and feel the heat from them. But 
What's going through your mind as you're standing there and this just ro- thunderous roar from these fires is coming right at you? Yeah. I mean, the, the amazing thing is I didn't really get a sense of the full totality of this experience until I got back in the edit room when I'm watching stuff and the editor calls me in and he goes, Hey man, look at this scene I just cut. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, Holy crap. That's terrifying. But on the ground, I, I guess, you know, in my own way, my commitment was to like, tell these guys story. And so what I got completely obsessed with the looks on their faces that they went from being these guys who were tough. They're just country guys. They just, you know, eat nails and spit bullets or whatever, you know, like they're just, they're tough. And, and so the idea of seeing them have this kind of awe, this like almost childlike sense of like being really dialed in as professionals, but then also just being like, our lives are going to change depending on whatever that decides to do. Right. Like just seeing them completely powerless and only trying to read. Like they're just trying to read like so that whatever it decides to do, maybe they can pick it up as quick as possible. But that was what I was focused on because I'd never seen like men like like just like the toughest, most professional, like soldier esque people who like live a life of like incredible discipline and training and like they'll they save lives on a regular basis. They go into situations I couldn't imagine on a regular basis. And in that moment in front of this 200 foot high wall of flame coming at them, they're just looking at like, you know, God, you know, you know, they're looking at this, this incredible force that like, you know, heretofore was described as like a, like an act of God. And like, they were, they were just sort of powerless. And, and that was, I, I was only, I sort of like uh, turned myself in front of them, like got in between them and the fire and was just filming their, their faces as they were like taking this in. And it's just like, cause those are those things in a film that you couldn't imagine or, or describe otherwise. Like that's when all of a sudden something otherworldly is happening. That moment is only known to other firefighters and they might not even, because they're so attuned, they might not even be aware of each other's reaction. So it might be the first time that firefighters who've been in that situation, which is like kind of like astronauts, like how many people have been on the moon when you're like, there's nothing between you and a 200 foot wall of flame coming straight at you. They don't have time to even look at each other and understand what this reality is, this strange sort of like moonscape that they're in where like it's pitch black darkness, but they're lit completely like it's daylight because this fire is coming. And like, there's just this orange glow every it's just it's really otherworldly so i sort of got lost in like that story i knew that that moment was something that was rare to be filming like that was the moment where i was like this is everything that we pre-produced for is to be here right now and doing this and then so i i didn't have any sense of danger i really kind of like i can't i made a quick deal with myself i think once i got in the car with them which was like if they run i run Right. Like if they're scared, I'm scared. But like unless they unless they take off, I'm fine. And so as long as they were like standing and and observing and doing their work, I was like, I'm I'm OK. And yeah. so, yeah. But it, once we got in the edit room, I was like, oh, because <laughs> there was stuff that I like I would like shoot like eight seconds of like just seeing like the trees, because like to your point about it, like creating its own weather system, the fire like, um, you know, like a small fire in your house, it like it needs like the chimney because it sucks cold air. And then it has this whole like sucking thing that it does. And then once it gets kind of enough, it kind of pushes back. And so there was this thing where these these trees, just full size trees were getting like thrown this way. And then the fire would be like, oh, now we're going. And there's no wind. It's just this fire creating all of this. And you're like, 
we're 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 this big we're tiny 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 yeah. and this yeah. thing is going to do what it wants to do we're talking about the forces of nature and until you've stood face to face with something like that i don't know what would be comparable to that i want to take a moment to let our listeners know that fireline is available on all of the platforms but as was pointed out to me check it out on itunes they are better for filmmakers than many of the other platforms so check it out fireline available now also want to acknowledge your producing partner ben sinclair a big part of making this film happen i also want to acknowledge one of your other cinematographers shooters in this was jack bradbury and others just remarkable that they put their lives on the line to the degree that uh, we see in this film and it certainly does feel Tyler Norwood, like you captured the essence of what this experience was and is for these men and women who fight our fires, not only here in California, but across the country and certainly here in the western states where these fires have become more and more aggressive. Well, Tyler Norwood, director, producer, writer, cinematographer on Fireline, thank you so much for this work, Fireline. And I look forward to more work, and hopefully someday you'll be able to come back and talk to us about your latest project. Tyler Norwood, thank you for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Sounds great. I'll look forward to it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 